found in Luke 24, verses 1 through 8. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men among them said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he had told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word that you've given us this morning. Thank you for this uh, recording of how your faithful children, though uh, misunderstanding and confused, went to your tomb and, and did not find you there, just as you had said. Father, by your spirit, open our hearts and minds this morning as we hear your word. Ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Steps over here in case I scared you on this side. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. I love the fact that in God's providence, Easter is in the spring. We know the season of the year for Easter. We don't know Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Jesus in the darkest days, but the Bible doesn't tell us what season Jesus was born. I think it's appropriate that we celebrate the light coming into the world on the darkest days when the days begin to get longer. But we know when Easter happened, when Christ celebrated the Last Supper, the Passover meal with his disciples, and then rose again on that first day of the week. And it was in the spring. Passover follows a lunar calendar, so sometimes Easter's a little bit earlier, a little bit late, but always in the spring. And it's so beautiful. And isn't it, it's just a good mood thing when you see the flowers start blooming and coming out. It just reminds us of new life. And it's not that we you know, trivialize the resurrection of Christ, that it's just inspiring, gives us a good feeling. It's God placed this greatest fact of history in the spring when we are reminded by the touch of his designing hand of beauty that touches our longing for heaven. See, Ecclesiastes 3.11 goes on to say, God has made everything beautiful in its time and he has set eternity in the hearts of men. He has given us a longing for heaven. Everybody longs for heaven, whether or not they believe in heaven. John Lennon wrote that song, Imagine, that is the most beautiful expression of the Communist Manifesto. Have you ever thought about the words? Imagine there's no heaven, nothing to live or die for, a brotherhood of man. So that would just make the world a better place if there was no religion. That's his idea, but it's a longing for things to be made right. 
And he doesn't recognize it, but it's a longing for heaven. 38 years I was a pastor, 38 Easter's. I went through all four gospel accounts of the resurrection. I went to Corinthians with Paul talking about the resurrection of Christ. And there are other passages. There were times that I would be in the middle of a series. And since the resurrection of Christ, his redemption, his death on the cross, and his breaking the power of sin and death by his resurrection was the central fact of all of history and of all the Bible. Wherever I was preaching in the Bible, I could tie it to, to Easter. But it wasn't until after I retired that I realized my favorite Easter passage is the one we're going to look at this morning. Because no matter, it, it, the, the first, uh, the passages of first importance are the passages where the, uh, the disciples of Christ witnessed the resurrected Christ. All right, we're having a little bit of problem here, aren't we? You know, by the time I'm done, we'll have all these bugs figured out. Am I too close? Am I too far away? Too close? We'll get it right. Okay. The, the passages of first importance are about the human witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Because it's, it's important that we realize the resurrection of Jesus is a historical event. It actually happened. It's not just spiritually inspiring. The disciples who were cowards and hiding away, who even though they had heard Jesus say he would be handed over to the chief priests and he would be crucified and he would rise again on the third day, he had told them time and time again that that's what's going to happen. They were hiding. They had lost it. Peter had denied Christ. They thought if they were caught, they might be crucified like him. And then Jesus appeared to them, and they realized everything that he had said was true. It wasn't just a metaphor. It wasn't just inspirational. And they went out to the world saying, he is risen. The four gospels were written documenting that. Paul wrote, who was an unbeliever at the time, who was a persecutor of the church, when he met Jesus on that Damascus road, he had he gave the greatest account about how many times Jesus appeared to the disciples, 500 at once. And he said, if Christ isn't risen from the dead, our faith is in vain. So it is of first importance that we look at the gospel accounts. We read two of them uh, this morning. And we realize the fact of the resurrection. But we also get from the Bible a scene from the other side, a scene from heaven's side. Our series, as we've been looking in the letters to the churches in Revelation, has been news from heaven. Well, we get a scene in heaven where the risen Christ actually comes back to heaven. And we see the celebration there. And that's what we long for. How many of you have really tried to picture heaven and what it's like? It really is not easy. The things that the Bible tells us about heaven are, are generally metaphors, but if you took them as streets of gold, everything gold, silver, precious stones, and you realize I have to go to sleep on a, a metal bed with no padding, you start thinking that way, it kind of loses some of its luster. It's a metaphor for how valuable and precious and beyond compare that it is. 
when you start trying to imagine what's it, it really going to be like in heaven uh, when Jesus said that we'll be like the angels, there'll be no marriage. And, and, and my wife has said, well, that's kind of disappointing. I'm glad she's still saying that. But the, my mother used to say, whatever we have here on earth is good, that is good. We're going to have even more so in heaven, so there's going to be enough George for me in heaven. But there's a, a glory in heaven that we, we can't quite describe, but we get a taste of it with that word glory. When do you feel glory on earth? If you're a sports fan, it's easy. It's when you, you in, in the the fantasy, I grew up with the fantasies, the sports fantasies that I never fulfilled myself. But it's the bottom of the ninth inning, two outs, bases loaded, you're three runs behind, and you hit the walk-off home run. That happens sometimes. And when it happens, for that moment in time, for those athletes and the fans for that team, that's a taste of glory. In the football playoffs, the NFL playoffs this last, um, this last year, just 2022, the Kansas City Chiefs were playing the Bills. How many of you are football fans? You know what happened? In the last two minutes of the game, the score changed four times. The, the Chiefs fell behind. There were 13 seconds left to play. 13 seconds left to play. And they had to go the whole field, and they did and scored a touchdown, tied the game, won it in overtime. That's a taste of glory. Earthly glory fades, doesn't it? The next week, the Chiefs had exactly the same scenario. They tied the game right at the end, got the ball, they got, they got the flip of the coin, and had the ball first in overtime, and they didn't make it. All that glory was gone. And maybe you're not a sports fan. Picture another thing, the, the romantic movie, the, a good one, a, a wholesome one, a decent one. There's not a lot of them anymore. But when everything comes right in the end and your, your heart just jumps up to your throat and it's, it's all right, that's a taste of heaven to come. And the interesting thing about heaven to come is when everything is made right, it lasts forever. The glory never fades. That's the thrill of it. Now here, we can only dream of it. In The Wizard of Oz, little Dorothy, out of a fallen world with tornadoes, I was thinking about this message, and then tornadoes swept through uh, the middle of our country. Again, if you noticed in the news. Now I thought, what a fallen world we live in. For the, for the people that that hit, with the tornadoes, or the, the people in war in Ukraine, what a fallen world we live in. The Dorothy was swept up either by dream or whatever to the land of Oz. And she wanted to get back home. She had to find the Wizard of, of Oz. But somewhere in there, she, she sings little, little Dorothy. Somewhere over a rainbow, way up high, there's a land that I heard of once in the lullaby. Somewhere over the rainbow, you know the song, skies are blue, and the dreams that you dare to dream really do come true. Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me, 
where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops. That's where you'll find me. And God has planted eternity in the hearts of men. We long for this. The Bible gives us a picture in Revelation chapter 5 of what it's like on the other side of the curtain. The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and the, the Cowardly Lion and the uh, Ten Men, oh, you know the, the whole story. They finally find the Wizard of Oz and the little dog goes and peeks behind the curtain. They go get him. It's disappointing, isn't it? It's a little man pulling on traps and everything, creating a, a fantasy of the wizard. They placed all their hopes in the wizard. That's a picture of putting your hopes of heaven in earthly things. They disappoint. And Dorothy was just left to wish really, 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 really hard that she could get back home. Are you left there just really, 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 really wishing for this wonderful place that you would want to be your home, but you're just wishing hard? There's no real way to get there. Revelation tells us when we look on the other side of the curtain, we don't find a diminutive little wizard pulling the levers. We find the glory of Emmanuel, Christ himself. Let's read this passage. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. I'll explain as we go through. This is a picture of a last will and testament. The first century writers would have recognized this is the reading of God's will. The scroll with the seven seals. And the seals are such that you'd open up a seal and, and read a page. Open up the next seal and read the next page of the scroll. They would recognize this is the reading of God's will. Well, what is God's will? I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who's the executor of God's will? Well, we have to remember what his will is, and I'm not going to go into the next chapters, but God's will is to allow us to see sinfulness as bad as it is, as the seals are broken open. Now, there's wars, there's all sorts of terrible things that are unleashed upon the earth, and we see them in our newspapers every day. Perhaps we're experiencing them in our own lives as we experience this fallen world. But in the middle of all of that, God says, I'm going to redeem my people. In chapter 7, you have your Bibles uh, going with you. You can just turn ahead and you see in chapter 7. But it's one of these revelation numbers that people end up debating over. It says 144,000 sealed. That, this is a metaphorical number. It's a symbolic number. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. It means God is saying, I'm going to save all my people. I'm going to save all my people. In verse 4, John says, then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. He heard the number, and then he looks to see. In verse 9, after this, I looked. And what did he see? It was that 
144,000. What's the fullness of God's people? After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's people are praising him for saving them. God's will and testament is yes to let our sinfulness show itself with all its disastrous consequences, but to save his people out of a fallen world. Who is worthy to do that? Anyone you know? Well, hopefully so, but there's only one person. Hopefully you know him already. But in John's experience, in verse 3, back to chapter 5, verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. How can God, who is holy, who must punish sin, save sinful people who have turned away from him, born dead in their trespasses and sins without compromising his holiness. How could it happen? Who is worthy to do that? There's no one found. And John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able, he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. If you ever find yourself struggling in this fallen world, whatever the circumstance, health, job, relationship, disaster, conflict, or whatever it is, this is a verse to memorize. Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. So John was told that, just like in, the, in chapter 7, he was told about that God will save his people, 144,000. He heard the number. Then he looked to see. John turned to look and see. And what did he see? Did he see a lion? This is where Aslan and the Chronicles of Narnia came from. But he didn't see a lion. He, Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the mighty one. He is the Lion of Judah. But what did John see when he turned to look at Jesus? Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Why? Because it had been slain. It was Jesus who had been crucified, who was now risen, who had ascended into heaven and entered in all of his glory. And John saw him as the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist had said at the beginning of his ministry. You see, this gets me emotionally. This, this gets me the, that little tug on the heart when you're a kid and you watch The Wizard of Oz and heard Dorothy sing, there's a land that I dream of, just a little tug. This is the real thing. 
And, and I love it. It's, it's become my favorite Easter passage because it's not just the glimpse of heaven that we see the risen Lord and he ascends into heaven and we know it's true and we know it's ahead of us. John's experiencing this. Standing, the lamb is standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. We won't go into all explanation of Revelation, but I just think it's the leaders of the heavenly host and the leaders of God's people on earth, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, the apostles and the prophets. We know there were 12 disciples of Christ in the New Testament and the prophets in the Old Testament. This is a way to describe the leaders of heaven and the leaders of God's people on earth. And he was standing in the center encircled by these. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Remember, seven is a picture of wholeness and holiness. Seven horns, a horn is a picture of power. It's an image of power. So he's almighty and his seven eyes, he's omniscient. And he and the Holy Spirit are one. It's the mystery of the Trinity here. As he sends his spirit into his people, into all the earth, Jesus in his own person as God the Son is omnipresent. But as Jesus said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If we have Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. All of this is just the fullness of God that's beyond our comprehension. But isn't it awesome? He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, God the Father. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Now, it's not the picture that God the Father is a God of wrath. And God the Son is the God of love. And God the Son appeases the Father's wrath. It's not that. They are all three one, in, in, uh, one God. And they're all holy, all loving. The Father who is holding that scroll sent his Son into the world to be our Redeemer. And Jesus, after he pays for our sins on the cross and is risen from the dead and ascends back into heaven, comes and takes the last will and testament of God the Father from God's hands to open it up and reveal it is finished. It is accomplished. I've done it, Father in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. He takes the scroll in his hands and God's people in heaven and on earth fall down in worship. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense for the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Look what they're praising Jesus for in heaven. If we could look behind the curtain, we wouldn't find the Wizard of Oz. We'll find Jesus being praised like this. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And, and with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and nation and, and language and people and nation. It had been a mystery, even to the angels who longed to see how can God promise all these blessings of goodness to these earthlings who have sinned against you? How can God work it out? By sending his son to take our place, to pay for our sins on the cross and to swallow the wrath of God in its entirety. 
and to save us, make us clean, give us the white robes of his righteousness to make us worthy of heaven. It's like, they're amazed. Wow, he did it. He did it. We couldn't figure out how he's going to do it, but he did it. Because you were slain and with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. The very lowest one of us who belongs to Christ will inherit the earth. Wow. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they sang. Now get the picture here. At first, it's the leaders of the heavenly host, the leaders of God's people on earth, falling down and worshiping, saying, praise, praise Jesus for redeeming his people. And then it expands to all the heavenly host. And the thousands upon thousands of angels in a loud voice, they sang, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then expands again, not just to all the heavenly hosts, but to, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the leaders, the four living creatures, said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is a task, a mission more impossible than tying the game with 13 seconds left. That's humanly feasible. It was impossible for a holy God to forgive our sin, except that he did this. He sent his son to go to the cross to pay its penalty, and only the infinite son of God could pay the penalty in full all at once and swallow it whole and conquer sin and death for us. And then he just gives it to us, to all who believe in him, who trust in him. This is your inheritance. This is your glory. When you see the scene from the other side, it doesn't disappoint. It more than fulfills. In fact, we can't conceive of what it's like to have that thrill of victory and it not fade, but it lasts forever and ever. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish pastor. He ended up being exiled uh, from his homeland because of the things going on in Europe between church and state and all that. You know, big, big mess. And he wrote a, a hymn that's become a, it wasn't a hymn, he wrote a poem that was put to music later uh, by someone else, by Anne Cousins. And I think that was her name. And uh, it was 22 verses. I don't sing 22 verses. And many of the verses at first were about his home, Scotland, that he was seeing as a foretaste of heaven. You see, every blessing, every beauty, everything you enjoy, every flower that blooms, every time you, you win, every time something goes right, that's a foretaste of heaven. And he saw Scotland, his beloved home, as a foretaste 
of heaven. And he wrote this poem about his beloved Scotland, his beloved home, but he realized in the poem and that, that his home in Scotland was just his earthly home. It was a foretaste of his heavenly home. And he wrote this uh, hymn uh, that would be better called Emmanuel's Land. And often we name our hymns by the first lines, as the sands of time are sinking. What a negative song. No wonder we don't sing it more because our time's running out. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. How this fits into our, our operating image that we're working in the graveyard shift, longing for the dawn to come. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight. But day spring is at hand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mirthy dust doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. And then one of my favorite verses of all times, it captures a thought that I haven't, I can't find another place that quite captures it this way. And Graham and Samantha can imagine this coming up this Saturday. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gifteth, but on his nail-pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. You see, the new song of salvation that Jesus gives to us, places in our hearts, is a love song. It's about our relationship with him. And for all we've talked about, the, the taste of glory on earth and the, the glory that's eternal in heaven, it's not the glory we're in love with. It's the Savior, the Lamb we're in love with. Now, I don't know how much you and Samantha have worked on your wedding. Probably you, very little at all. Your job is to show up. And Samantha has probably has worked a lot on different things to make the wedding right. And it's because it is special. It's worth the work to do that. But wouldn't it be disappointing if Samantha came down the aisle and she was just looking around saying, wow, what a good job we did with, the, look at the flowers. Isn't that beautiful? Look at my dress. Can you believe this? And you're just an afterthought. Wouldn't that be disappointing? When I got married, it was, we had one of those long aisle churches with, with slate. And, and my wife was not one that liked to be the center of attention. And she grabbed her father's arm. And I tell you what, she looked like she was being let off to prison. <laughs> Now I was thinking, look up, look up, because I was picturing her looking at me. And it says, look, and I was also thinking, 
Bend your knees, bend your knees. Don't faint, don't faint. Look up, look up. Yeah, it was better than any fantasy because we actually really got married. It was better in that way. But you get the, you get the point. If we're all enamored with the things that are the celebrations, and we gaze at the glories of heaven and forget the one who opened the doors for us, we've missed the point. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Christ is risen. Alleluia. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us in this, this passage of Scripture the taste of heaven from one who in his, this, this vision went and saw the glory that glory is centered on the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who is slain, because he has redeemed us by his blood. What a glorious, loving sacrifice for us, and what power that he should overcome for our sake. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.